welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Um, last Sunday morning, um, I began a, ser- a series that I've entitled Hot Potatoes from 1 Corinthians. I know that you're all familiar with the phrase hot potato. You know, we talk of it being an issue that is embarrassing, awkward, uh, difficult, one that we would rather avoid than embrace. And um, 1 Corinthians really does have a number of what were for Paul then and what were to us, what is to us now, awkward issues, um, hot potatoes. So over the next few weeks, I want to take a little bit of a look at some of them. Uh, in introducing the series last week, I spoke about Paul's attempt in his uh, correspondence to the Corinthians to re-socialize them, is the word that uh, would be used today, uh, to bring them into a way of thinking that was consonant with the new story that they'd been grafted into through uh, their faith in Jesus. What Paul was seeking to do was to shape their moral imagination, as it were, by um, connecting them with the story that they were now part of, the gospel story. And in effect, through 1 Corinthians, what he's saying to them is, this is now who you are. This is your new identity. This is the story that you have been grafted into and are now part of, and you need to live out of that, empowered by that. Um, We looked very briefly last week at the first nine verses of the letter, and I want to read them to you again. Um, And they clearly outlined the new story initiated by Jesus' death and resurrection that they had been grafted into and that you and I, by our faith in Jesus, have also been grafted into. And so he starts off and says, from Paul, chosen by God to be Jesus Christ's missionary, and from our brother Sosthenes, to the Christians in Corinth, invited by God to be his people and made acceptable to him by Christ Jesus and to all Christians everywhere, whoever calls upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and theirs. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you all of his blessings and great peace of heart and mind. I can never stop thanking God for all the wonderful gifts that he's given you now that you are Christ's. He has enriched your whole life. He's helped you speak out for him and has given you a full understanding of the truth. What I told you Christ could do for you has happened. Now you have every grace and blessing, every spiritual gift and power for doing his will. Uh, yours during the time of waiting for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he guarantees right up to the end that you will be counted free from all sin and guilt on that day when he returns. God will surely do this for you, for he has always done just what he says, and he is the one who invited you into this wonderful friendship with his son, even Christ our Lord. We could go through that in detail, but effectively he is saying to them, now that you're grafted into this story by faith in Jesus, you are beloved by God, you were chosen by God, you've been made acceptable to God, you've been given gifts by God, you've been enriched and blessed by God. And what he's doing is telling them of the their new identity. He's saying these things constitute your new identity. This is now who you are in Christ. I, I talked last week about the difference between two words, indicative and imperative, and, and they're kind of strange words that we don't use a whole lot in our conversation. But when you come to the gospel story, they are incredibly important. 
the indicative words are, are declarations. They are indications, if you like, of who God has made you to be. The imperative words are commands. These are the things that you have been told to do. And I talked last week how gospel indicatives, the truths and declarations that God has made about you, sustain gospel imperatives, the commands that you are now called to obey. God never tells you to do anything without first of all saying who you are and empowering you to be able to do those things. In scripture, every imperative, every command is based on and flows out from an indicative, something that God has said about you. You're never asked to do something without first being told something about who you are. If you go to the best and most famous list of imperatives in the Bible, you go to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 30. Well, if you, uh, Exodus chapter 20, sorry. If you go there, the very first verse before there are the imperatives is an indicative. And that indicative says, I am Jehovah your God who liberated you from slavery in Egypt. Your new identity is you are servants and the, the family of Jehovah. You've been a, you are a liberated people. This is the indicative. This is who you now are. And out of that indicative, you live the imperatives. You, you obey the commands. God gives you his grace, his empowering presence that enables you to be and do what you're called to be and do. So there's always, firstly, who you are. Secondly, what you're called to be and do. So Paul starts the letter by informing them of their new identity. This is who God has made you to be. Out of that new identity, out of the indicatives, this is how you live, the imperatives. So important to see that God does not ask you to do things that he has not enabled you to do. I think I mentioned John Bunyan's famous little ditty last week when he said, Run, John, run the law commands, but gives me neither hands nor feet. For better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. He had it right on the, he, he had it, he had it right on the, on the head of the nail. Religion asks you to do things, and if you can do them, the identity is created. I am loved because... God doesn't do it that way. God changes your identity and gives you the ability to do those things. I am loved, therefore, a massive difference. Now, the, the problem that Paul faces with the Corinthians is that they weren't being who they were. He says you aren't living out of the right story. You're living out of an old story, an old identity that is no longer true of you. You still look like a Corinthian. You're quarreling, you're divided, there's immorality and, and, and uh, idolatry among you. You're not being who you are. Henry Nouns once said, from the moment we claim the truth of being in the beloved, we are, we are faced with the call of becoming who we are. It's easy to read 1 Corinthians without realizing that it's not only the Corinthians that need their moral imaginations reshaped. I suspect this morning that we need a conversion of our imaginations as well. And too often, we live out of the wrong story. Too often, we don't live according to our truest identity. Like the Corinthians, we are profoundly influenced by the cultural milieu that we find ourselves in. And quite frankly, sometimes we look more like 21st century Westerners than we do Christ followers. One of the hot potato issues that Paul addresses in this 
epistle, pretty much for the first five chapters and on throughout the epistle as well, is their complete failure to understand the corporate nature of their calling. The idea of the corporate calling and our corporate responsibility remains with us a hot potato issue. In our radically individualistic culture, to call people to corporate responsibility is something that at least we 21st Westerners are not going to lean into. And Paul has to deal with this with the Corinthians. He challenges them. He says, your divisions and your quarreling are tearing the fabric of your community. You are pushing your personal likes and dislikes and you're dividing into cliques and it's threatening the very witness and life of the community. He says to them, when you come round the tables, when you come round the table for communion, it's every man for himself. You're eating and drinking without any reference to anybody else in the community, especially those that are less fortunate. He says this is a betrayal of this meal's corporate purpose. He says to them, you consider your sexual activity as your own personal private business. You think that your immoral practices aren't anybody else's concern or business. He says, when you are part of a body, there is no private sphere of morality that is nobody else's business. He says, if you've got leaven in your life, it affects the whole lump. I want to tell you, that's a hot potato issue in our community. He says, you have no concept of what it means to, the body, to be the body of Christ. You cannot be a member of the body and function without reference to it. He's saying, that's nonsense. Paul pulls absolutely no punches with the Corinthians. You are not living out of the right story when you behave like that. Now I can imagine perhaps some of you thinking, because I certainly did, why would Paul have to challenge individualism in a culture that at that time was generally much more corporate in its thinking than, for example, we might be? But I suspect Corinth was something of an exception for a pro probably a number of reasons. Number one, Corinth was a port city. And as such, it attracted the rootless, the adventurers, the people that had left kith and kin of close, authentic rural commun communities, and they'd come to the city with all its alluring temptations in the hope of finding a better, more exciting, more prosperous life. And cities tend to be characterized by looser networks and by more individualism than the intimate family relationships that marks rural communities. And in a port city like Corinth, it would be much easier to live as an individual, to live irresponsibly if you were so minded to do. Uh, you, you wouldn't face the consequences of your actions in the way that you would in a smaller, tight-knit community. So Paul has to speak to the individualism that has made its way into the church from the cultural milieu of, of Corinth. Also, I think perhaps the fact that um, a, a kind of a religious idea and expression had taken place called Gnosticism, and it had influenced Corinth, and many people, including Corinthian Christians, had been touched by it. It was a form of spirituality that fostered a kind of spiritual elitism, a select few who had supposedly spiritual knowledge, and it lifted them above the unenlightened herd. It was very, very individualistic. But for whatever reasons, those included and probably for more, the Corinthians were acting and thinking as individuals without any sense of corporiety. And, and as you're aware, this is an incredibly postmodern phenomenon. You and I live in a relational moment and in a cultural time when the needs and wants of individuals completely trump 
totally eclipse the concerns of the larger community of which we're part. Our culture is marked and our story is one of authentic self-expression. Expressive individualism has become probably the predominant moral wallpaper of our time. You and I have bought into a story that tells us that our dreams, our goals, our happiness, and our personal fulfillment takes precedence over all. And although we might be hesitant to articulate it quite so crassly, we are more important than the well-being of others. We are numero uno. I know it comes as a shock to many of us to find, if in fact we ever managed to find, that large numbers of people throughout history and still around the world today do not share that story. They do not have this cultural tide of expressive individualism. They do not live out of it. In fact, in most cases, they are completely repulsed by it. They see themselves as embedded within a larger group and they function with much more of a collective and corporate view of reality. For them, the welfare of the larger group of which they are part is more important than their individual and dreams, wants, and personal fulfillment. I've used this illustration before, forgive me if you remember it, but how many people of you saw the movie The Titanic? Okay, majority of you. There were two key characters you remember, Jack and Rose. Jack, who was played by Leonardo DiCaprio, was a charming street kid who was on board the Titanic because he won a boarding pass in a poker game. Rose, who was Kate Winslet's character, was part of the upper echelon of British society and she was engaged to be married to a man from her own social stratum. Um, as the story unfolds, it's clear that Rose has absolutely no affection for her fiancé, and it's easy to see why. He was arrogant, he was obnoxious. But this marriage would guarantee an honourable future for her extended family. And in a memorable scene, Rose's mother reminds her that this arranged marriage is in the best interests of their wider family. It seems that Rose's father had squandered much of the family fortune, and this marriage represented the only hope for her family in terms of preserving their present social status. Well, you know, Rose meets Jack, and an encounter ignites the flame of a romantic relationship that serves as the main storyline for the rest of the movie. And the question is, who will Rose choose? Charming Jack or the obnoxious fiancé? And of course, the answer is Jack, or the movie simply wouldn't have worked for the tens of millions of Westerners who paid to watch it. As 21st, Western, uh, 21st century Westerners, we are quite unmoved by the potential disaster facing Rose's extended family, and we want to cry out, go with your heart, Rose. Ignore your mother's unfair and unrealistic advice and dump the rich jerk. Be happy. Be free. Follow your dream. You know what? Outside a Western concept, much of the audience, if they would have seen that, would have had a very different reaction to the story a very different reaction because they do not share our expressive individualism. They would have been appalled to discover that Rose would even consider sacrificing the honor of her family on the altar of her personal relational satisfaction, let alone actually following through on it. In their story, the social status of the wider corporate family takes precedent 
over the individual's fulfillment and happiness. And they could never countenance such a selfish, thoughtless course of action. Now this may be a shock to you, but the Bible is orientated much more to the corporate form of thinking than it is to our radical individualism. We tend to read the Bible with our cultural glasses on and we see expressive individualism. We talk about our personal relationship with Jesus. We talk about Jesus being my personal saviour. And we very rarely consider or question the validity of such an emphasis in spite of the fact that the Bible rarely, if ever, uses that kind of language. Now before you faint or walk out in disgust, I do believe that you have to be saved personally. However, I would want to say with the reformers that though you are saved by faith alone, you are not saved to a faith that is alone. The modern notion, and you hear it all the time, that you can be a Christian without being part of a church is entirely foreign to most of history and to most of Scripture. To say that you can be a Christian and not be part of a faith community, as many, many people do, and you know, I think if I ask the question here, how many people believe that you can be a Christian and not go to church? I think most of us would find our hands sort of starting to rise. For most of history and for most of, um, for most of Scripture, the idea that you can be a hand, a foot, an eye, an ear in the body and not be part of the body is the height of oxymoronic stupidity. But it doesn't occur to us. And it doesn't occur to us because we have been more influenced by our culture than we have by the teachings of Scripture. And Paul is addressing this in the Corinthians. He says, you're functioning like a whole lot of individuals. And that's not who you are. You are not functioning out of the story that you have now been grafted into. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, he says to them, do you not know? By the way, Paul is a bit exasperated here. And that phrase, do you not know, really could be interpreted, how come you don't know? I did tell you, have you forgotten? And 10 times in 1 Corinthians, he uses that phrase. Don't you understand? You should. He says, don't you know that you are the temple of God? Now, most of us read that, I am the temple of God. My body is the temple of God. But while that's true, it's not a, it's, it doesn't go far enough. The Greek language here is not your body individually is the temple of God. The, the language here is plural. And what it's saying is we together collectively are the temple of God. Let me read the Amplified that kind of gives the idea. Do you not discern and understand that you, the whole church at Corinth, are God's temple, his sanctuary, that God's spirit has a permanent dwelling in you to be at home in you collectively as a church and, and also individually? Look, I don't mean to insult you, but I want to tell you that you individually are not sufficient to express Christ. You simply aren't big enough. I'm not big enough. You can be and should be full of Christ, but you can never be the fullness of Christ. In the same way that my finger is full of me, but it is not the fullness of me. We are not enough individually to be a full expression of who Christ is. Fullness requires 
corporeity. It requires a corporate body. Peter illustrates the difference and distinction between a part and the whole, between full and fullness, when he says, come and be his living stones who are continually being assembled into a sanctuary for God. Listen, one stone is not the temple. The temple requires all the stones to be fitted together. This idea or theme of our corporeity occurs again and again through the epistle. It's the reason why Paul is so disturbed about their divisions. The first few chapters are talking about their divisiveness. And he says, your divisiveness is tearing the fabric of of the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Later in the epistle in chapter 12, he says, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And he's saying to them, your questions and quarreling over which speaker is better or more important or more skilled than others is silly, he says to them. It's like asking, who's more important, the one who plants the seed or the one who waters it? Without without the planter, there is no seed to water. Without the one who waters it, that which is planted will die. He says, don't do this. Stop it. It's not who you are. You're not living out of the right story. Together, he says to them in chapter three, verse nine, you are God's field and God's building. This is, this is corporate language. Here again, that passage that I read to you, you together are God's temple. And then he goes on to say, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and together you are that temple. Boy, this, this is a sobering piece of scripture, particularly in a time where people divide up the, the church and, and, and local fellowships are caught and torn. I mean, God is saying something through Paul here that we need to hear. This is not about us as individuals. He's, he's not talking to us as individuals. He's talking to us as a corporate body. You know, I had to do an incredibly difficult funeral one time for a person who had taken their own life. And somebody came up to me after the funeral, after I'd talked, and questioned me about one of the hopeful statements I had made in my talk. The deceased person was a believer. They obviously were struggling with terrible depression, and in the moment of darkness, they made a, they made a choice that obviously altered everything forever. But I, I had made the comment that suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Well, the person came up to me and they quoted the passage in Corinthians and they said, you know what it says that if you destroy the temple of God, God will destroy you. This man destroyed the temple of God, meaning his body. Therefore, God will destroy him, i.e. he will be sent to hell. But that isn't what that passage was talking about, not at all. This is, this is corporate. This is, if you aren't careful about the body of Christ, you can incur the judgment of God. And he's saying to engage in division is to destroy the divine society and consequently it is to invite God to destroy you. You know in Proverbs chapter 6 there are seven things it says that God hates and the last one is a person that sows discord among brethren. God takes division seriously. He takes people who are divisive seriously. If you want to see how God feels about his body, 
you were to read again 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is talking about coming around the table, around the communion. And he says, so if anyone eats this bread and drinks from this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he is guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why a man should examine himself carefully before eating the bread and drinking from the cup. For if he eats the bread and drinks from the cup unworthily, not thinking about the body of Christ and what it means, he's eating and drinking God's judgment upon himself. For he's trifling with the death of Christ. That's why many of you are weak and sick. And some of you have died. Paul's saying it wasn't his purpose, God's purpose, that there would be that kind of thing happening in the body of Christ. But it's happening because people are coming around the table, not discerning the body, and are eating and drinking unworthily. Now look, for most of my Christian experience, those verses were used around the Christian table as an invitation for me to involve myself in some introspection. Time for me to probe the inner recesses of my conscience. Don't come around the table unworthily. Have you any unconfessed sin? Are you worthy to come around the table? Well, I don't know about you, but for most of my life, the answer was a, a no. And so oftentimes, I would be coming up around the table, you know, I'd have to uncross my fingers before I took of the elements. And I think you're laughing because probably you know at least what I'm talking about. You know what, the Eucharist, the communion table, you call it what you will, is not intended to be a private act of piety focused on my need for and my reception of individual forgiveness. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not the context. It's not his argument. When Paul talks about discerning the body, he's not talking about your body. He's not talking about the communion wafer and, and, the, and the wine. He's referencing the corporate body of Christ, not something individual. It's, it's a call to consider, in this case, how the Corinthians' presence behavior, their divisiveness, their quarreling, their immorality, their every man for himself behavior around the common meal, how it was negatively impacting the health of the community. He said your behavior is negatively impacting on your corporate responsibility and witness. And if you keep doing that, then judgment will come. Some of you will be unwell, sick, will die not in the purposes of God. That's a, to me, that's frightening. Paul is not saying your personal sin disqualifies you from participating in communion. If you've sinned, don't come because you'll be eating and drinking unworthily. Well, most of us would be sitting there and most of the communion table would be full every Sunday if that was the case. That's nuts. That's like saying don't go to the hospital until you're well. Part of the communion is so that we, as a community we can partake and become whole and healthy. What he's saying is you're failing to comprehend and act out of this corporate responsibility. And when that happens, the unity of the body is damaged. You can come under God's judgment. Our corporate behavior, um, sorry, our individual behavior, Paul is saying, has a corporate responsibility. And that's, that's a 21st century hot potato. We want to sing with Mick Jagger. It's my life and I'll do what I want. That's better than Mick Jagger, but you know. I'm humble. Hey, I was given a badge for my humility one time, but they took it off me because I wore it. What about the Hollies? What's wrong with the way I live? Way I use my time. People should live their lives, leaving me to mine. That's not as good as the Hollies, okay? I admit that. <laughs> that's our thought. That's the way we think. It's my business. 
Stick your nose out. As I said to you, I suspect that 99% of postmoderns, including most Christians, would say, for example, my sexual capacities and decisions are mine to make. And so long as I don't hurt anybody else, it's nobody else's business. Paul doesn't say that. Paul challenges that. He says this, you are not the owner of your own body. You have been bought with the price. Therefore, bring glory to God in your body and in your spirit because they both belong to God. Regarding the laxness of sexual sin among the members of the Corinthians, Paul says this. He said, you know what? There's sexual sin among you and you're so tolerant of it. He said, it's not good. Your boasting about your tolerance is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven yeasts, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? The Passion Translation says this, don't you understand that even a small compromise with sin permeates the entire fellowship, just as a little leaven permeates the batch of dough? This is frightening, but what he says is, you know what? Your individual sexual sin impacts the life of the body. It has corporate implications. It introduces leaven to the whole loaf. We together are the body of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says like we're one loaf of bread. Although we are many, we become one loaf of bread, chapter 10, verse 17. And one body, we feast together on one loaf. We are one loaf. You introduce yeast to it, it leavens the whole lump. You know, you say, well, come on, Don, you know, how does that work? I mean, don't lay that guilt trip on me. Well, I'm not. Paul is. And I'm not. Scripture is. You, some of us need to hold that hot potato and let it burn us. Because of who God has made us to be in Christ, Paul is telling us that as a community, we have the moral responsibility corporately in terms of the conduct of our members. And, and it's really clear, and it's no doubt a hot potato, that Paul regards even the so-called private conduct of consenting adults impacts the life and health of the whole community. We have corporate responsibility in the way that we live our lives. That's, that's, that's an interesting thought. You know, I don't know how many discussions I've been in over the years with people who say, why isn't the church as powerful as it should be? Why isn't the church impacting society as it should be? Why isn't the leadership doing? Why aren't the musicians doing? Why isn't the preaching doing? You know, could it possibly be that some of those things aren't happening, not because the preacher, not because of the worship leader, not because of the leadership, or not because of some kind of spiritual failure over the church institution, but because its individual members aren't taking corporate responsibility and, and things aren't working properly because we just live unhinged without any sense that my life in its private sphere really does matter to who we are as a body. That's a hot potato for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. In that way, whatever happens to one member happens to all. If one suffers, everyone suffers. If one is honored, everyone rejoices. I could add entirely in keeping with Paul's thoughts, and if one sins, we are all affected. Some of you will be familiar with John Donne's very famous poem. He says, no man is an island entire of itself. Everyone is a piece of the continent, part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe lies the less, as well as if a promontory were. 
as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. That's written out of a sense of corporeity. And we don't share that kind of language in our culture. And Paul is, through the scriptures, trying to reshape our moral imagination. Oh my goodness, if that's true, how should I then live, as Francis Schaeffer would say. There's a powerful statements throughout Corinthians about our corporate nature and respo- responsibility. Unfortunately, most of us are so familiar with the language, the body of Christ, we don't let it touch us. When, when Nick said, you know, we need fresh eyes sometimes to see things. So true. We can read, you know, where Paul's talking about the body and it, it, it just kind of, yeah, 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 you know, we're the body of Christ. Right over our heads. Let me read this portion to you as we draw to a close and see if you can hear it in fresh in fresh ways, given that we are called to think corporately and not just individually. So Paul says, just as the human body is one, though it has many parts that together form one body, so too is Christ. For by one spirit we were all we were immersed and mingled into one single body. And no matter our status, whether we were Jews or non-Jews, oppressed or free, we are all privileged to drink deeply of the same Holy Spirit. In fact, the human body is not one single part, but rather many parts mingled into one. So if the foot were to say, since I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it's forgetting that it is still a vital part of the body. And if the ear were to say, since I'm not an eye, I'm really not part of the body. It's forgetting that it's still an important part of the body. Think of it this way. If the whole body were just an eyeball, how could it hear sounds? And if the whole body were just an ear, how could it smell different fragrances? But God has carefully designed each member and placed it in the body to function as he desires. A diversity is required, for if a body consisted of one single part, there wouldn't be a body at all. And so now we see that there are many different parts and functions, but one body. It would be wrong for the eye to say to the hand, I don't need you, and equally wrong if the head said to the foot, I don't need you. In fact, the weaker parts, the more vital and essential, and essential they are. The body parts we think are less honorable, we treat with greater respect. And the body parts that need to be covered in public, we treat with propriety and clothe them. But some of our body parts don't require as much attention. Instead, God has mingled the body parts together, giving greater honor to the lesser members who lacked it. He has done this intentionally so that every member would look after the others with mutual concern and so that there will be no division in the body. In that way, whatever happens to one member happens to all. If one suffers, everyone suffers. If one is honored, everyone rejoices. This is incredibly powerful corporate language that for most part, we Westerners, we, with our expressive individualism, just do not understand. We are cheering on rows. We're saying, come on, dump the rich jet. Go your own way, your dreams. You are the most important. The rest just serves you. It's not that way. You know, there are so many things that could be said out of this passage. I just wanted to draw your attention to two things. Number one, there's no self-depreciation among the members of the body. You might think that you're not that important. That's not what this passage says. The foot should never compare itself to the hand. Because I'm a foot and not a hand, I'm not part of the body. Listen, I know that the hand has a place and prominence that that the foot doesn't. 
I mean, the Beatles didn't sing, I want to hold your fit. <laughs> just, just wasn't going to fly, you know. The reality, however, is without your feet, you're never going to get to your girlfriend's place to be able to hold her hand. <laughs> the ear says, I'm not an eye. Therefore, I'm not of the body. Well, you know, we all know the eye has a place and prominence that the ear doesn't have. Drink to me only with thine ears. Just kind of doesn't quite sound as good as drink to me only with thine eyes, does it? And don't say to your girlfriend, I want to look into your ears. (laughs) It doesn't cut the mustard from a romantic point of view, does it? You probably won't be able to see to look into them because your eyes are going to be blackened. (laughs) However, without the ears, you can't even hear the romantic overtones in the words about your beloved's eyes. We need each other. We desperately need each other. And, you know, not only should the member who seems to think I'm not as good not do that, those of you who think you're better shouldn't depreciate other members of the body. No self-depreciation, no depreciation of others. The more prominent members of the body should not put others down. Verse 21, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The more prominent members can't say to one another, I don't need you. We desperately need one another. Paul is saying, don't do that. To function like that is to function as individuals. You are not individuals. You are corporate in your responsibility. Yeah, of course we're individuals, but we have corporate responsibility. Our behavior has corporate implications. That, that, you know, as you think that through, that's a hot potato. I mean, I'm not even sure I want to hold that one. I want to throw that one too. Because there are times, you know, I just, I, I, you know, like you, you just want to do your own thing. You're tempted to do your own thing without any reference to what does that mean for the body. We don't think in those terms. Like I said to you before, if I said, do you believe you can be a Christian without being part of a church? I think most of us would feel our arm rising. So, um, it's probably not ideal, but yes. You know, it was Martin Luther who said you cannot be saved without the church think, Luther? I thought the Catholics said that. No, Luther said that. What he didn't mean was only the church can save you. You can only be saved as salvation trickles down through the institutional hierarchy of a church. He wasn't saying that. But what he was saying is you come to faith alone and by faith alone, but not to a faith that is alone. And if you're not in the church, I'm sorry, this this salvation hasn't taken. You've got to be part of a body. You can't express the fullness of Jesus by yourself. that's That's a hot potato for huge numbers of people in our culture who would not go to church on a Sunday, not be part of a community, but would lay claim to be a Christ follower. Paul would want to challenge that. Paul would say, I'm sorry, but you can't do that. That can't be true. That's that's like saying, oh, I see that eye walking down the road. Oh, interesting. An eye all by itself. We, we kind of grin and, uh, at the, as I say, the oxymoronic stupidity of such an illustration. But it's how we live. So often we do not live in reference to the body that we are said to be part of. Now, I know that you could be sitting there thinking, Don, you're preaching to the choir. I'm here. And, and I know that. 
But I want to tell you, and this probably has a bit of a pastoral barb in it, and you can take it for what you, for, for what you will. But the number of people who uh, would say they're part of a body, but their patterns of attendance, of giving, of relating to the body are so um, infrequent that, that I'm not sure that it cuts the mustard. I'm not sure that coming to church once in every five weeks, four weeks, six weeks cuts the mustard. I'm not suggesting, as we used to, that you had to be in church every time the doors open, twice on Sunday, once on a Wednesday night, and for prayer meetings all through the week. I'm not suggesting that. But I think that we have gone so far to the other end of the spectrum that people feel they're part of this body and we don't see them from one month to the next. Maybe once every eight weeks they drop in. I, I, um, I'm, I'm not sure that cuts the mustard in terms of what Paul is talking about here. But there's a lot of cutting the mustard going on this morning, isn't there? It's the ham sandwiches I'm dreaming of when I get home for lunch. I, I'm done. Musicians, would you come? Let me finish by saying we need each other. We affect each other. We are not islands. We need our imaginations reshaped, perhaps even converted. And that this book challenges our expressive individualism. And it's a hot potato that we have to come to terms with if we are going to be the testimony of Christ in the earth. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.